0: My name is Claire and I go to 5 p.m. with my husband, Paul. Today we're reading from Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 23. I'll give you all a second to get it. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers, and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shohan, and to Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city of which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will too prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city, your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine and plague against them and I will make them like figs, but they are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine and plague and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. I curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord. Words that I sent them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, son of Mahasiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah, who are in Babylon, will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbours, wives, and in my name they have uttered lies, which I did not authorise. I know it and am a witness to it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, weren't the Olympics and the Paralympics fantastic So many amazing things to see and to celebrate. So many glory moments to witness and enjoy. And wasn't it great to bask in the glory of our Aussie triumphs? I mean, check out the medal tally. How much glory did Australia receive compared to everyone else? Their glory is, it's our glory. We're Australians, right? Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! Oi, 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 oi! I didn't hear you, but you heard me. Glory brings applause, it brings adulation, it brings affirmation. Glory tells us that we are worthwhile, that our choices are the right ones, that we are in the right place, we're backing the right horse, and our plans and our decisions are the best that we can make to give us what our hearts long for the most, more glory. Now let's be real about this. We're glory addicts, aren't we? We're attracted to glory. We seek after glory. We hunt for it. We long for it. We collect it. We then display it on our pinboards and in our trophy cabinets and write it in our Christmas letters. Best of all, we can now pop it up on social media posts and that will you know, help us publicize to all the world our latest personal glory daily. And we don't put up there our, our, our shame and our mistakes, of course. No, 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 no. But we tell our stories of glory and we love it when others agree and give us that little like and applause and they agree with us that our ever-increasing glory is precisely what we should be pursuing. I think this might be why so many Christians love what God says here in Jeremiah 29 so much. We overlook all that stuff about sin and death and judgment because in here is a glory promise that we want to claim for ourselves and claim for those we love. So we pluck verse 11 out of this letter and we give it to our friends on cards and on coffee mugs and and all kinds of keepsakes so we can all claim this glory promise of God. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And we hear those words and we say, yes, God wants for me the glory that I want for me. But is, it? But is that really true? I mean, sure, we want it to be true. It matches the desires of my heart, what I want for me. So it must be true. But you know, when Claire read that, I'm not so sure. In fact, I'm here to tell you, it's a trap. It's a trap. And it's a trap that can break your life just as it broke the lives of the Israelites before us who abused God's word and abused his promises written for them in the Old Testament. Just like them, when you and I fixate on our glory cravings we start to read the Bible badly and we begin to play with God's word twisting it and distorting it and and it's not long before we find ourselves steadfastly ignoring what he actually says and if it goes unchecked This self-glory addiction becomes a death trap as we find ourselves living in opposition to God and his glory. That's the warning story. That's the warning story that sits behind this frightening letter of Jeremiah 29. So let's take some time now. Let's take some time to learn from their mistake so that we don't just simply repeat it. As God's people living here now in Bulai, the northern Illawarra, wherever you're living, we're not living anywhere near the promised land. So let's learn from what happens when God's people back then lived for their own glory and fell short of the glory of God. Let's find out what we ought to do differently and how to do it differently and let's ask God to help us as we do. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are the God who speaks in your word. Oh, would you help us to be your people who listen? Listen, not for just what we want to hear, but listen to what you actually say. Help us not to distort your word. Help me not to distort your word as we unpack this together. Father, would you give us both news of your unfailing love that also includes the warnings we need to hear? and Would you help us? Overcome our glory addiction and show us what true glory ought to look like when it comes from your hand. Help us in all this, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this letter before us that Claire read out in Jeremiah 29, it was delivered, hand delivered, some 2,600 years ago. The prophet Jeremiah lived in the changeover period from the 7th through to the 6th century before Christ. And the official letter mentioned in this chapter can be dated to the year 597 BC. Accurately, of course, because of all those people. I mean, all those names that were mentioned are strange to our ears and perhaps hard to pronounce, but these were real people. So it's right to at least try and get their names right as we pronounce them. Because they really lived, they really walked in those days. And this letter comes near the end point of Israel's decline into disaster from the heights of its, at the centre of world power. It then fell into becoming a split nation in civil war with itself and finally destroyed and devastated down to a tiny, tiny little group of survivors in exile living a long, long way from the promised land. Israel went from decline to disaster and it took just 400 years to come apart. A long time in terms of our lifetimes, but in the life of the world, in the life of a nation, 400 years, it's a blink. From the golden nation that we looked at last week, where the standing army had more than a million fighting men ready for battle at a moment's notice, an enormously powerful nation. Nation and all the nations were coming into Jerusalem to bask in the golden glory that Solomon was spreading out through all the world down to a tiny rabble of a few thousand humiliated exiles forced to live in a foreign land of Babylon while those back in their homeland were systematically destroyed by God's wrath for sin. That's the awful setting. Of this Jeremiah 29 letter. That's the setting that provokes it to be written. Was God prospering his people in this period? No. Clearly not. At that time he was actually very busy keeping a promise. A different promise. A promise to make sure they met the consequences of their self-glory cravings. That they actually met the consequences that he had promised them. A detailed promise, a much detailed promise he had made back before they left Mount Sinai. Remember the old Ten Commandments things in the Exodus? Just before they leave Mount Sinai and start walking towards the promised land, he gave them a chilling promise that was published and recorded and repeatedly referred to so that no one would be surprised by God's actions if it happened. Here's a snippet of that promise. It's recorded for us. 700 years before Jeremiah's letter, recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 26. Here's the start of it. If you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength you'll plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me I will punish you dot 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 and it goes on and if we keep reading on there in Leviticus 26 God's promises their layer upon layer upon layer of devastation. If at each point when he pauses and sends them a prophet to tell them that they're doing the wrong thing, if they again refuse to listen, then he'll apply the next layer until they finally find themselves, verse 46 of Leviticus 26, a devastated minuscule number in exile in a foreign land. He laid it all out for them. But of course, that would never happen. You know, back there at Mount Sinai, of course, that was never going to happen. It was never going to happen because, of course, they would listen to God. Of course, they would never reject His commands, His laws, and His decrees. Of course, they'd never forget them. And even if they did make the occasional mistake, of course, they would listen to His warnings. Of course, they would. Of course, they would feel the heat of those punishments, those discipline. And of course they would turn around. Or so we would think. But the record of history shows us that's not what happened at all. And God made sure that it was recorded as it happened so that everyone would know and would understand precisely what was going on. So this period of history from the decline of King Solomon down to the 70-year exile that we have where we come to Jeremiah, uh, this 70-year exile in Babylon, this is covered in the Bible, in the Old Testament, by no less than 50 books. I'm referring to the books of two kings and two chronicles and the writings of the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah... Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, each of these 15 Old Testament books pick up different periods along that 400-year timeline and they each tell us what was going on, if they're in the whole nation as a whole or in different parts of the nation as it was occurring, amongst all the different levels of society as this was happening along the way. And while the prophets called out all those moments and all those problems, they were called out for all to see... The vast majority of those writings focus in very closely on the kings and leaders of Israel and how God sent the prophets specifically to address them. This laser-eyed focus on the leadership of God's people was to show us where the problem began and where it then spread out from. And it all began with the king. What was his failure? What did the king do that everybody else copied? Well, the king became a glory amnesiac. A what? Yeah, a glory amnesiac. An amnesiac. You know, a person with amnesia? A person who, you know, forgets, has a loss of memory, that awful condition where we forget who we are and where we are and what's going on around us? Amnesia. But it wasn't that kind of amnesia that the king of Israel all came down with now they knew who they were all right they knew precisely where they were all right that's not what they forgot now their amnesia was to do with glory their glory versus God's glory because remember God had made a promise to David about the kings that follow him in his line God made a promise about all those kings he said I will glorify my name in how I glorify yours if you walk before me and keep my commands. We, we looked at this in detail last week. It was all very clearly stated and publicized for all to see. But as time went on, well, they forgot to do that if bit. They forgot to do the walk before me and keep my commands. And the reason they forgot to do it is because they had forgotten how this glory thing works. And they'd forgotten what they'd already received from God in terms of glory, in terms of keeping and obeying his decrees. And so they began to pursue self-glory like all the peoples in all the nations, in all the places around them. So the decline began with King Solomon. Uh, Not long after that famous visit by the Queen of Sheba that we heard about last week, Solomon forgot how good and gracious, powerful, wonderful, generous and awesome was this God who had put him on the throne of Israel. And Solomon fell in love with the glory of himself on his fancy throne and all the things that he could find for himself to enjoy, especially the things God had forbidden the kings of Israel to collect Gold? Don't do it, said God. But Solomon liked the glory it gave him and so he collected more than 25 tons of gold every single year. War horses from Egypt? Don't do it, said God. But Solomon liked the power glory that they gave to his armies, so he collected more than 12,000 of them. Wives? Don't do it, said God. But Solomon liked the sexual glory they gave him. So he collected more than 700 wives and 300 concubines. He pursued self-glory in wealth, in power and in sex. And where the king went, no surprise, the people followed after. And the next king did it too. And the next and the next. And systematically and repeatedly and willfully They broke every command that God had given them. What did God do in response to this? Well, God kept his word. He kept his word precisely according to all that he said would happen. Systematically, bringing upon them all the punishments he had described in the form of civil war and natural disasters and Foreign invasion. He did it like that. Over the course of time, the nation was split in half, its borders reduced, its wealth squandered and stolen, its people died at the hands of foreign invaders and in plagues they couldn't resist. And along with keeping his word about those punishments, God also kept his word about sending them profit after profit after profit to point out the error of their ways, to alert them to the problem and call them back to himself so they wouldn't keep on dying like this. Along that 400-year stretch, there was the occasional bright moment. There was occasional bright moments. A couple of generations there where some obedient kings, one called Hezekiah and another king called Josiah, well, they listened to the prophets. They actually listened and they obeyed God and everything turned around and the whole nation turned around under their rule. But straight after their deaths, the next king went back to the old ways and they would lead their people again back into disobedience and death glory amnesia was the order of the day and it prevailed until the 10 northern tribes were obliterated by the assyrians in 722 bc never to be seen again and then in 605 bc judah and jerusalem was invaded By the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar the king who took hostage Israel's king along with Judah's future leaders like Daniel and they became Babylon's unwilling citizens and slaves was this the end for historical Israel was this the end of the promise of God to establish his people in his place under his rule that famous promise To Abraham and then to David? Well, it sure looked like it, didn't it? It sure looked like it. This is the depressing situation we find Israel in when Jeremiah writes this letter that Claire read out for us from Jeremiah 29. In fact, if we were to to mark it here in that kingdom chart we've been working on, we can see that the promise of God's people in God's place, under God's rule, well, now looks nothing like it did in the partial kingdom 400 years earlier. Let's compare it. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God's people was my servant David, my people Israel. God's place, they were at rest from all their enemies. God's rule, blessing through the house of David. But now in Jeremiah 29, where we find ourselves, well, God's people is a remnant from Judah. God's place, exile in Babylon. God's rule, his word through the prophets. And that was all. Now for us sitting here, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see and understand what was going on. Because we can stand back from that 400-year history. We weren't stuck in the moment of it like they were. But when you're stuck in the moment, it's a whole lot harder to see what's going on. And as Jeremiah's letter explained... The exiles in Babylon were stuck in the moment. They had surrounded themselves with liars and with lies about what God was doing in this awful situation. Those liars said that the lucky ones were actually the ones who were back there in Jerusalem, the ones who were back there, and that the cursed ones, uh, you lot here, stuck in exile, this remnant here in Babylon. That's what they said. But nah, said God, wrong way round. No, said God through the prophet Jeremiah, it is totally the other way around. The people and the king back in Jerusalem, they're the ones who are still under God's curse. They're the ones on whom he is going to continue to send the sword and famine and plague until they become, as we read here, an object of horror, scorn and reproach. Why will he do that to those who are back there? Well, he says it, verse 19. Because they have not listened to my words that I sent them again and again by my servants, the prophets. That Leviticus 26 promise still playing out back there in Jerusalem. And so what Jeremiah's letter makes amply clear is that the exiles out of the land, the ones over here in Babylon, well, they are the remnant, the ones whom God planned to bless. But still, for him to bless them, we can see in this letter that they're going to need to listen and they're going to need to live his way. Now, until this corrective letter Until this corrective letter, they weren't doing that. Uh, They needed this corrective letter. They needed this word from the Lord because the exiles living there in Babylon thought that everything would be okay and that God would come and rescue them and take them back to where they thought the blessing was, back there in Jerusalem. They thought that would happen if they could be religious enough, if they could be exclusive enough and impressive enough in their religious devotion. That's what they thought the key was. If they succeeded religiously, where all those previous generations had failed religiously, then God would be so impressed with them that he would come and rescue them and take them back to Jerusalem. That's what they thought. And it seemed like a good idea. Let's glorify ourselves with religious practices. Let's impress God as much as we possibly can with our religion And of course, God will bless that. Of course, God will prosper us. And everyone who was there agreed. Everyone, of course, except God and his prophets. For self-glory in religion is no more virtuous than self-glory in wealth, in power and in sex. No more. Better. It's no better at all. And so God spoke again to correct their amnesia through this letter of Jeremiah. And so he made it very clear to them, rather than staying religiously exclusive and aloof, he commands them to do the strangest thing. Did you notice it? He commands them to build houses, to settle down and to marry and to increase and to seek the peace of Babylon where I have carried you, he says. He says, pray to God for Babylon's prosperity not for Jerusalem but for Babylon's prosperity because if it prospers then you too will prosper and then in 70 years he says then I will bring you back to Jerusalem for I know the plans I have for you exiles in Babylon you and no one else but you plans to prosper you and to give you a future, you exiles, you and no one else but you. I promise to bring you and no one else but you back to the land out of captivity, out of the hands of the lands I carried you in exile. I will carry you home, you exiles there in Babylon. This promise is for you and no one else but you. See, having stripped them of their wealth and their power and their sexual practices and now even their religious practices, having taken away their land, their temple, their army, their religion, their pride, God left them with just himself. Just himself and this very specific word of promise that applied only to them. So did God keep that promise? Did God keep that promise to the exiles? This promise to give the exiles a hope and a future back in the land of Israel? And did he also keep the other promises that we were recorded here in this famous letter? The promise to destroy those false prophets around them and those liars in that day. And that promise there to destroy the rest of Jerusalem and its king who were still doing outrageous things back in the land? Well, yes, he does. God keeps his word of promise. He keeps his word in the time frame and in the places precisely where he says he will keep it. He keeps it. And that's why we know this famous glory promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 applies to them and not to anyone else. It applies to them and it doesn't apply to you and me today. And what happens next for the remnant And how God will work to restore them. How he will give them hope and a future. How that all plays out. Well that's what we're going to go diving into next week. As we continue God's story in that way. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave you and I living this side of all these historical events? I mean if if God doesn't promise Jeremiah 29 11, for us if it's not for us then what does God promise for you and me what can we reach for hold out for look to what can we tell our friends and give them oh friends he promises more he promises better and so much more so much more than a a one-way ticket back to dusty old destroyed Jerusalem That's for sure. You see, in those messages recorded by the prophets, those 15 books worth of messages, the prophets also spoke about a day that would come beyond Israel's return to Jerusalem, beyond the remnants return from exile, a day when God would send his servant to bring justice to all the nations of the world a faithful servant in whom all peoples can put their hope, a servant on whom God will place his spirit and who will also place upon him all our transgressions. Unlike for Israel, where the punishment they deserved fell upon them, well, the prophets promise that the punishment that brings us peace with God will be laid entirely upon this servant. Not on us. And they prophesied that after he suffered for these sins, that he would then see the light of life and that by his knowledge, he will justify many and that those he justified, he will also glorify. Now the prophets themselves looked into this and they looked into the timing of this grace that was to come. And it was revealed to them that they were actually serving us. By revealing the glories that would be ours in the gospel. Not self manufactured glory. Not the glories we, you know, post online and collect dust in our trophy cabinets. But the glories the glory of knowing God's one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Knowing Him who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Knowing Him who sustains all things by His powerful word. And with that powerful word, Him making a promise to us. He said, Do not let your hearts be troubled trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms and I'm going there to prepare a place for you and then I'll come back to take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Where was he talking about? A room in, you know, good old Jerusalem? No, not at all. Nah. No, for us... Us who hear and trust the promise of Jesus, oh, he's giving us a home, a home with his Father in heaven. He gives us the right to sit with him, not just a vague room out the back somewhere, but to sit with him on his heavenly throne in the throne room, ruling the nations alongside him in glory forevermore. That's the glory promise. The Lord Jesus gives for everyone who puts their trust in him. That's the promise that stands for you and I. And that's why Christians today, we all say, Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.